Listen in to the forum at St. James Church. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Oh, let's do better than that. Merry Christmas. There you go. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for this holy season of Christmastide, for the promise that you dwell with us forever, and that coming among us in the person of Jesus Christ, you show us the depth of your glory and the radiance of your love. And we pray that as we enter into this epiphany tide, that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us see our Lord and Savior and to walk with him all our days. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. So I'm gonna do a little lightning round at the tables while folks are coming in still. Um, and I want you to very quickly introduce yourself to everyone. Uh, everybody gets a turn to introduce yourself and to say one thing, and again, lightning round, brief, one thing for which you were grateful over the holidays. Go. Has everyone had a chance to go? Yes. Nod your hand as everyone's had a chance to go. Excellent. I think gratitude is a good place to start a new year. Um, there's the famous book that there are really only three prayers, and Lamont said, help, thanks, and wow, and if you forget two, thanks is the one to remember. Um, so I think it's a good place to start a new year. We're gonna read the Gospel of Matthew together. If you think back to the fall, we define that term, beloved community, coming out of the American Civil Rights Movement, as a kind of shorthand that developed for what could be achieved or accomplished when people of faith banded together to make their faith visible, manifest, and lived in the world. What could happen when people of faith got together to make their faith visible, manifest, and lived? And the reason we're reading Matthew is Matthew is all about making visible, manifest faith. It opens with the proclamation that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And almost immediately you have wise men coming from the east to see, to behold Jesus. Indeed, Matthew, the most Jewish of the gospels, is clear. Jesus is not just a great teacher or a rabbi. There is no mark in secret. He's clear that Jesus is the human face of God. He acts with the dominion and the authority of God. And it's the only gospel to also explicitly use the term ecclesia, church, to speak of that ongoing visible manifestation of faith, us. So we'll talk more a lot about all of this as we go along the way, but you might think of Matthew as one long extended invitation into beloved community, inviting us to see Jesus and inviting us to be the church, the place where others can see Jesus, bump into Jesus by the way we live and by the love we share. So we're gonna read Matthew together. I hope you see on your tables a few things. Um, you'll see, uh, a reading schedule. If there aren't, I was putting them out quickly, so we may have to redistribute if necessary. But there's a reading schedule for some Matthew every day for the next 50 days. And I hope you also see this little book. This is published by Forward Movement. It's called A Journey with Matthew. 
a 50-day Bible challenge, and you'll see that those same sections that are assigned for each day are in this book. And for each section, you have several things. You have the, the scripture itself. You have a reflection written by some uh, leader from around the church. You have some reflection questions, and you have a prayer. So this epiphany, this is your guide for daily engagement with God through prayer and scripture, which is one of our parish goals through Renewal Works, that we engage daily with God through prayer and scripture. This is your tool. Um, the forums on Sunday over the next seven weeks are going to be about Matthew. We're going to have small groups in February that are about the Sermon on the Mount, a little uh, part of Matthew, an important part of Matthew. Uh, but really, this is the bread and butter, a daily, uh, a daily engagement with Matthew. These are a gift to you. And I would invite you as good stewards that if you would like to offer a contribution to pay for your copy, I see some vestry members nodding, <laughs> that there, are, there is a basket by the door on the way out. And I, I really invite you to make a donation. Uh, these books cost about $15. So if you uh, have a 20 on you and you want to help pay for somebody else who doesn't have money on them today, uh, that might be lovely, or you can bring it by the parish house anytime in the next 50 days. I will take your money. It's good. <laughs> also on that table, just a quick plug, is some chalk and a sheet about chalking the doors. Super weird. Not going to say more about it. It's all on the sheet. Take one. It's awesome. It's an epiphany <laughs> tradition. Matthew, of course, is the first of the four Gospels when you open the New Testament, right? You'll notice uh, in our uh, bulletins today, we're reading from the early chapters of Matthew. I think it's like New Testament page one or two, right? Matthew is the first of the four canonical gospels, but it's not the first written. Y'all look like smart people. Anybody know what the first written was? Mark. Mark. Well done, Mark. Both Matthew and Luke, in fact, draw heavily on Mark. Uh, by one count, roughly 90% of Mark is replicated in Matthew almost word for word. 90% of Mark shows up in Matthew, word for word, and it makes up about half of Matthew. Does that make sense? 90% of Mark becomes half of Matthew. And that chunk of material is the key arc of Jesus's life and story, the key events. Mark is spare on details. He's short on dialogue. He's, uh, he's big on events that happen immediately, and then the next one, and then the next one. So, Matthew uh, takes that key arc. Then there's about a quarter of Matthew that is shared with Luke. Scholars sometimes call this the Q source from the German for source, Kella, which is mostly sayings or parables or teachings of Jesus. And then there's a quarter of Matthew that is unique to Matthew, that has some of his unique and distinctive focuses, like the wise men for instance, that we, that we hear about this week. All four Gospels, of course, point to Jesus, but each do so in their own unique ways, which I think is a really helpful reminder to us who like to sometimes have a, have a clear sense of who God is, right? That's a human temptation, is to want to think, I know God, I can contain God. It's a clear reminder to us to be a little more humble, right? There are four Gospels that are each trying to get at this phenomenon of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. None of them, none of us, has a monopoly on God. So there's a tradition some of you may be familiar with that I think is sort of helpful when you think about the four Gospels, which is to associate each one with one of the creatures 
that the book of Ezekiel and then the book of Revelation talk about flying around the throne of God. You'll see them on the bell tower of St. James and in the Reredos uh, and on the lectern. There's a long tradition that these four creatures are associated with the four gospels. Mark is a roaring lion trying to get our attention immediately. Luke is a ox, which reflects Luke's association and, and real interest in the poor and the humble. And Jesus is kind of plodding toward the cross, bringing us along with him. John is soaring like an eagle. He's offering us some real perspective. He's not too clear about some of the details. He gets some of them a little wrong, but he's, all, he's got perspective, baby. And then Matthew, Matthew is a human face, like an angel, a human face. For Matthew, I think that face image is a really helpful one to have in our heads as we read this gospel, because he wants us to see Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, but not just generic God, Israel's God, Israel's God. Matthew is very interested in showing us that Jesus is clearly and unmistakably the God of Israel incarnate. He says more than any other gospel, things like in fulfillment of the scriptures, or as the prophet foretold. As you'll read Matthew, you'll see this come up almost as often as immediately comes up in Mark's gospel. In fulfillment of the scriptures, as the prophets foretold. Matthew is all about clarity and visibility and continuity. This Jesus is the God of Israel incarnate. Come to his own people, come to Israel, come to call them into deeper relationship, but and also unmistakably drawing in the Gentiles, drawing in the whole world, just as Isaiah foretold, from the wise men at his birth, chapter two, all the way to his charge at the end in Matthew 28, to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The God of Israel incarnate come to his own, and but drawing in the whole world to inherit the blessings of Israel. We see those themes emerge really quickly in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel, which is what I wanna talk about today. The wise men, which if you were at 910, you've just heard, or if you come tomorrow uh, for the lessons and carols at six o'clock for Epiphany, the wise men are the obvious part of this story. Jesus is hailed as a king by the wise men, the Gentiles who come from far away, astrologers from Persia, something to have in the back of our heads as we think about the world today and Iran. The astrologers from Persia come to follow the star and to see what the corrupt king of Israel cannot, which is who Jesus is. They see what the king refuses to see, that God is at work in a new way in this Jesus. And coming to offer their gifts and falling down and paying him homage, they worship him, doing what his own people are not doing at this point in time. And their visit sets in motion a kind of recapitulation of all of Israel's story. The Holy Family forced to flee into Egypt, just like Joseph and his brothers were forced to flee into Egypt in Genesis. Then when the danger is past, they're led up out of Egypt and back into the promised land, just as Moses and then Joshua did back in Exodus. In fact, it's not an accident that the angel instructs Mary and Joseph to name Jesus 
Jesus, Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua, right? God is leading his people out of slavery, out of wilderness, into promised land, except this time once and for all in a deeper and more cosmic and lasting way. So right off the bat, Matthew tells us what he's about. He tells us in the infancy narrative of wise men and Herod in Bethlehem in Egypt and Nazareth, we see those scenes that Jesus is clearly and visibly Emmanuel, the God of Israel, the fulfillment of the prophets incarnate, come to his own people and drawing in the Gentiles and seen by all. So that's chapter two. That's the obvious, uh, the obvious one. What I want to spend our time with this morning is chapter one. So I want you to invite, I'm going to invite you to turn in these little booklets to uh, page two. Page two. <coughs> and right in the first sentence, you see something that, um, that is uh, unique to Matthew, which is that Matthew begins with a genealogy, a genealogy of Jesus. And it's not that someone got a subscription to Ancestry.com for Christmas, <laughs> right? It's that Matthew wants right off the bat to prove a point. He is using this genealogy to prove a point about these key themes, Jesus's Jewishness and how the Gentiles are popping up all over the place and finding their way into the story. So what do I mean? Take a look. Who's the first ancestor in this genealogy? Well, go, go to the actual genealogy. We're told he's the son of David, son of Abraham. But then when the actual listing of ancestors begins, what, who's the first? Abraham, right, Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of blah, 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 blah. In the old translation, these were the begats, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Abraham, Matthews goes back to Abraham. Luke's genealogy, which doesn't come at the beginning, Luke's genealogy comes way later, goes all the way back to Adam. A little dubious. <laughs> um, um, but Matthew goes to Abraham, which is really important. Remember the story of Abraham, which begins in, in the early chapters of Genesis, chapter 12, and ongoing, really. Who is Abraham but the father of faith, right? Abraham is a resident of the city of Ur, who is called by God to go on a pilgrimage like those wise men, to pick up everything and to move his whole family, his maids and servants and his wife, to go under the promise of God that even in his old age, he would be the father of a great nation, right? Abraham is the father of the people of Israel, right? And the promise is that he and Sarah would have descendants as numerous, you remember, as the sand of the seashore and the stars of heaven, right? That Abraham would be blessed with this great nation of, of descendants. And? But not just that. Anybody remember what the, the ending of that promise to Abraham was? He would be this great nation so that all nations would be blessed through them. 
right? They, you will be a great nation so that all the nations will be blessed in you. This is the promise to Abraham that it's not for his benefit only, but for the benefit of all of God's children, right? That everyone would find blessing through Abraham. So this genealogy makes a few things clear. It's clear that Jesus is the son of David, that is the Messiah, and the son of Abraham, the heir of this covenant, the one in whom Abraham's mission would be fulfilled to bless all the nations. But the significance isn't just in those um, early uh, attributions, son of David, son of Abraham. It's also in the whole list. I won't make you count it, you'll have to take my word for this, that there are three groups of ancestors. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. There are 14 generations from David to the exile, when the Babylonians right, destroy and the people of Israel are sent into exile, and then 14 generations from exile into Joseph. One thing you may or may not know is that Hebrew letters also have numeric values assigned to them. There's a kind of numerology embedded in Hebrew uh, language. And 14, it so happens, is the numerical value of the Hebrew letters of the name David. So Matthew is making a really clear point. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David three times over. As Christians, we may hear Trinitarian uh, evocation there, but also just think in scripture when something happens three times, it's a lot, right? He's the son of David. He's the son of David. He's the son of David. Don't you see? A little like Easter. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. No, let's do it two more times, right? <laughs> to really prove the point. He's the son of David three times over. But there's more than that. It's not just showing the, Jesus, the Jewishness of Jesus' identity. Messiah, son of David, three times over. Embedded in these 14, 14, and 14 are four women. Four women, each of whom are outsiders, each of whom are Gentiles, and each of whom in their own way is somewhat scandalous. So see if you can find them. Let's look in the list. Can we find these women? Okay, Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and I think I heard wife of Uriah, right? Okay, so let's go in order. You have Tamar, the Canaanite woman. This is Genesis 38, who dresses like a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law Judah into giving her children. Not a story we tell a lot in the primary chapel. <laughs> Secondly, you have Rahab. This is uh, the beginning of the book of Joshua, which is the story of the people of Israel leaving wilderness. Joshua, Yeshua, coming from wilderness into the promised land. Rahab is a prostitute in Jericho, that first city the Israelites come to, who assists the Israelite spies in conquering her city. Ruth, y'all know Ruth. We had a parish week in a way about Ruth. Who's Ruth? Where's she from? Moab. Is Moab Israel? No. What does, Mo, what does Ruth do? She follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, because they're all widows at this point, and they go back to Naomi's homeland, Israel, and what does Ruth end up accomplishing there? Seducing who? Yeah, her soon-to-be husband, Boaz. She seduces him. And, uh, to save herself. 
Yeah. And who does she become? The great grandmother of King David. Yes, that's a good euphemism in the Bible for sex, <laughs> uncovering feet. Anywhere you talk about feet, weirdly in the Bible, it's about sex. So you've got this third character, this third foreigner, who uh, finds her way weaving into the story, not just as a odd outsider, but as a key player, right? Without Ruth, this outsider coming in and uh, engaging with Boaz, not only would she and Naomi not have lived, but David would never have been born. The great-grandmother of King David, right? So a key figure. And then the wife of Uriah. I heard Bathsheba, right? We remember the great story from, from Samuel about David who lusts after Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, seduces her, has her husband killed. And then who is their child? Solomon, the great king. So we're not a chapter into Matthew, and we learn three key things, I think. We learn, firstly, that the mess of our lives is no match for the grace of God. The mess of our lives is no match for the grace of God. He can work with the likes of us because he always has worked with the likes of us. The human story is complicated and messy. The Bible is not full of... Uh, Perfect people, it's full of people like you and me. And God works among complicated systems to redeem. So that's the first. The mess of our lives is no match for the grace of God. The second is that Jesus, who this story is introducing, whose own birth was shrouded in talk of scandal, right? Hmm. How is Mary pregnant? Right? Whose own birth is the stuff of scandal, and who grew up to scandalously eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and Gentiles and sinners, who the temple authorities and even John the Baptist's own disciples are all scandalized by, that this Jesus seems to come by it honestly. Right? His family tree is as complicated and messy as ours. And thirdly, and most importantly for these big themes in Matthew, Israel's history is shot through with God weaving in the stories of the Gentiles. That Israel's story is shot through with the story of God weaving in the stories of the Gentiles so that the one human family that he created might be brought back together. God seems intent on showing that he's not done until all people are reconciled with God and with one another. That's the story Matthew is telling. That's why we're reading it, this Epiphany Tide. The story Matthew is telling is how in Jesus, God is reconciling all people to one another and to, them, and to each other and to God. How he's the son of David, the Messiah whom Israel had long been waiting for. How he's the son of Abraham, in whom all the nations would find a blessing. How he's Jesus, Joshua, the one who would lead his people from wilderness into promised land. How he's Emmanuel, God with us, come to his own people, calling them into deeper relationship, but also for the whole world, unmistakably welcoming in Gentiles, welcoming in those who the religious elite, the church goers, the temple goers would have thought were beyond the pale all so that the human family would be what God intended them to be. Beloved community. Beloved community. That's Matthew's vision. It's complicated as we go along, 
as we read, but that, I think, friends, is the overarching vision of Matthew's gospel, that God is at work in Jesus, bringing the whole human family together. That's the vision that I hope we can catch as we read this gospel over the next seven weeks. So in the last five minutes, what I wanna invite us to do is to go back to our tables and have a little time together, sharing with one another um, either one thing that surprised you in these first two chapters that maybe you didn't know yet, or a question that you find yourself pondering at the end of this time together that you really want to spend some time with over the next seven weeks, either about Matthew's gospel or about who Jesus is in your life. So I invite you at your tables to spend these next five minutes, something that intrigued or surprised you or a question you have that you'd like to take into these next seven weeks. Friends, I wanna honor your time. Uh, we're coming close to the hour. So does anybody, maybe one or two folks, wanna offer a question that bubbled up or uh, something that they really hope we spend some time on over the next few weeks? One thing that came up um, at our table was um, the differences, the differences between uh, Matthew and Mark and what they may mean. Um, do they, do the different accounts both reflect the truth or um, if we dug into them, could we be um, uh, discovering errors or misunderstandings of what happened at the time? So I, the question, I think, is about how do we reconcile the, the multiple portraits? And I think the answer the church has always given is we, we read them all to come to a fullness. Um, and it's not so much about disagreement as it is about perspective and emphasis. And there are days where I need Mark to be a roaring lion, getting my attention. And there are days where I need John's perspective. Anybody else? We had a question about um, if uh, Jesus is bringing us to God, what about other religions what, uh, that exclude Jesus? Great. So we're going to have to, if the image of Matthew is beloved community, all people being reconciled together, we've got to spend some time talking about other religions. Absolutely. Other, other things that we want to make sure are lifted up as we begin these seven weeks together. I think we'll emphasize this that uh, we have to learn that uh, no human being can claim of being a thoroughbred. <laughs> because I think our, our breeding of all of us comes from Abraham, his descendants, and, uh, uh, and uh, God, of course. And many of these uh, descendants have uh, assumed the other aspect, and we we should not be surprised if we see uh, the monks in, on the East praying uh, uh, love and peace in different uh, words and in different yeah. uh, ceremonies. We are all brothers in God. Yeah. Thank you. So one of, the, one of the truths of scripture is that we're all a mess and we're all made in the image and likeness of God, <laughs> right? The whole human family, we're all a mess. God's grace can work even with the likes of us, and we are all, all of us, children of God, made in the image and likeness of God, beloved of God, and therefore part of the beloved community. And we can't rest because God hasn't rested 
until we're all part of beloved community. So we'll leave it there. You have your reading schedule, you have your books, leave a donation on the way out if you can. Start reading, see you next week. To learn more about St. James Church, visit stjames.org. That's stjames.org.